Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000073 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands. And as we all know, Radio City Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd like to remind everyone that this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, this is a mission, a show that takes a a close look at some of the issues that impact First Nations people and other oppressed cohorts in our community. Now, to be honest, it's uh, so far over the previous 72 episodes, it's been blackfella issues all the way down. And uh, so is the case tonight. And uh, that's okay. That's okay. You know, uh, here for a good time, here for um, an important time listening to people talk about important issues. So shortly I'll be joined by Narita Waite, the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, and we'll have a yarn about what mechanisms are in place to hold police to account when there are allegations or instances of police brutality. And in the second half of the show, on a much lighter subject, thankfully, Rachel Hocking will be joining me on the line to talk about country music and why that particular genre of music has resonated so strongly with Aboriginal people throughout the decades. She wrote an excellent article uh, that appears on the um, NITV website. Uh, so um, I'll encourage you to have a look at that after we finish with this. So another interesting show coming up for you. And another friendly reminder that the Radiothon is still on for another eight days. And now more than ever, this station needs your support, as you probably well know by now. Um, Now, I know a fair few of you actually cook dinner while listening to this show. It's on in the background, and I reckon that's really good. As long as you pay care and attention to whatever it is that you're preparing, I don't want you to faff things up just because you're engrossed with this show. So if you're branding off some onions, make sure you do it properly. If you're cooking a curry, make sure you cook the spices off for at least 30 seconds, or... um, If they have already been toasted, then don't worry about that so much. But it is important to cook the rawness out of spices, particularly things like turmeric, chilli and cumin. If you're a keen carnivore, make sure that you get yourself a uh, thermometer to cook by temperature, not time. Nothing worse than an overcooked scotch fillet, in my humble opinion. Or if you're making a nice lentil and sweet potato salad, for instance, make sure you rinse the lentils properly. Make sure you check for pebbles or stones. And then make sure that the integrity of each and every lentil remains intact throughout the cooking process. I can't stress that enough. Nothing worse than mushy lentils. Now, once and only once you have carried out these tasks or whatever element of the dish that you're preparing tonight, with care and due diligence, I'll say that again, with care and due diligence, pick up your phone, tablet or computer and go to RRR. .org.au and subscribe or, do- or donate to your broadcaster in times of disaster. Now, we're coming through the uh, the end of this uh, second wave, it would seem, if we continue to do all um, the right things. And there's been a lot of 
you know, coming and goings by some uh, fringe elements in the community. Um, and I think it's really important that, uh, you know, we all stay the course as we head towards a new kind of normal. The sun has been shining. People are getting on with their lives the best they can. And we as a collective have, have, listened, have not listened to the noisy minority. And I hate terms like the silent majority and the uh, quiet minority or the noisy minority. But in this instance, during this time of pandemic, I think most of us have just shrugged our shoulders and said, hey, this sucks, but hey, what are you going to do? We just need to get on with it. And I think that's been the case with the vast majority of people. So we stood firm and we are seeing this thing through, which is, of course, great for my cohort of the population, my community, the Aboriginal community. So what have we done? We've proved that we are not going to live in fear. We've proved that we have a chance to turn the pages over. And this time, we know we're all going to stand together. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now, on to our first guest. Now, I've got to change the pace completely. Uh, we continue to live in a state of emergency, as we all know, uh, as we tackle COVID. Now, th that state of emergency gives law enforcement authorities extensive powers to carry out orders of the chief health officer, a position that was created as, re as the result of uh, 19, the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. They were enabled to carry out his, basically his directions in terms of making sure that people adhere to public health orders. But with these powers, of course, come great responsibility and there have been instances in recent weeks that have seen people end up in hospital as a result of their engagement with police. Last week, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, along with the Human Rights Law Centre, Australian Lawyers Alliance and the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre, put out a joint uh, media release. Uh, this coalition of agencies is urging Premier Andrews to ensure greater accountability in light of a spate of incidences involving police violence. Most recently, the case of uh, Noongar man Corey Penny, who has alleged police threw him off his bike on the way to work, pinned him to the ground, caught him a black sea, injuring his arm for the crime of riding a bike without a bike light in the early hours, early hours of the morning as he was heading to work. So on the line now is um, a Yorta Yorta woman and CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service to talk us through some of these issues. Narita White. Narita, welcome to the mission. Thank you very much. Uh, what is currently the process for investigating instances of alleged police brutality here in Victoria? Hmm. So the current process is that you can either make a complaint direct to Victoria Police, um, in which case uh, the Professional Standards Division will investigate, um, and then they may allocate that matter to um, the station heads. Um, and then you also might decide to um, make the complaint directly to IBAC. Um, and if you make the complaint to IBAC, in the vast majority of incidences, um, those, once again, will be referred back to Victoria Police to investigate. So basically you have um, the institution who has allegedly committed the wrong investigating the wrong, um, which I think any logical mind um, is inconsistent um, and raises the issues of ethics and transparency and accountability. 
Yeah, and it's long been the case here as well. So what sort of mechanism does the does the legal service look to sort of, I guess, put in place? I know that um, in New South Wales they have ICAC and down here we have IBAC and like you just said, IBAC more or less refers matters back to the police. How would we want to go about investigating, you know, some of these allegations? Hmm. Um, what we've asked the Victorian government to do is basically end police investigating police, so have an actual independent police oversight body um, where they can independently investigate and they can then refer incidences for prosecutions where there's sufficient evidence because this will increase accountability, um, including regulation and accountability with respect to body-worn cameras, and particularly in some instances that we've seen in the last few weeks, which have really eroded public confidence in police um, and really, once again, highlighted that there are a number of systemic issues within Big Pole that need to be urgently addressed. Otherwise, we'll keep seeing what we're seeing. Um, and then, you know, the historic and contemporary relationships between police and my communities um, have always been fought, um, but issues like these, issues that um, result in Aboriginal people dying in custody, they just further embed those divisions and we really do something about it if we're to really come together. And we've seen, like, across the across the country since the Royal Commission into Black Deaths and Custody and an additional, tragically, 441 people that we know about that have uh, died in police custody. And so what that sort of demonstrates is that, you know, by and large, when Aboriginal people die in custody and police investigate themselves, we are yet to see one single charge as a result of any of those internal investigations or coronial reports or anything. So that um, means that the the trust between our community and, and law enforcement is thwart right from the outset because there's just so many historical deep connections that that mistrust is based on. Mm-hmm. That's right, Danielle. And um, it's not like these incidences are few and far between. Uh, when you look at um, how many Aboriginal people have died since um, that commission was brought into play in 1987, coincidentally the year I was born, um, it started. There's still not so many of our community. Um, and, you know, it works out to us losing a community member every few weeks in custody. Um, and that's just not good enough. And time and time again for generations, um, my generation, my mum, my grandmothers, mm. my great-grandmothers, um, we've called um, for a just and equitable society for all, not just for a few. Um, and part of that is really addressing the systemic issues that confront Aboriginal communities at all levels um, of institution and government, but also making sure that we really are heeding the calls of those generations and we are saying and taking standards so that black lives do matter. They are just as important as any other life out there and we value them the same. We we have a very strong police union in this state and we also have, uh, you know, successive state governments that have basically given police and law enforcement, pretty much every resource that they've asked for in terms of the way they enforce the law. Are, are you concerned at all as the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service that Victoria is at risk of of becoming a police state? It's a hard call. Um, it's a hard call to make um, to say that we're exactly in a police state given the current pandemic. Um, but what we're seeing time and time again is increasing interactions with our community, which tells me that we are edging towards a very, very conservative and strict law and order approach in this state. This, this is advancing the most vulnerable. 
Um, you know, Daniel, if I look at um, how increases um, are occurring, in one year we had 18.75% increase of our community interacting with Victoria Police. Right. Now, if that doesn't tell you that there are issues with over-policing, um, that there are issues with um, how things can be um, directed towards vulnerable communities, and I don't know what does. Um, you know, we saw all those family violence changes and um, those are fantastic for protecting women, but then we saw our own women labelled as perpetrators and locked up rather than supported. So there's a lot of unintended consequences that are occurring, and I would hope that any responsible state government would take the time and consideration to review legislation, make sure that there aren't any unintended consequences, and make sure that we're doing all that we can to support our most vulnerable rather than persecuting them. So how would you rate the relationship between Victoria Police and the Aboriginal community right now, given you are on the front line as the, as the CEO of VALS? Um, you have extensive network across the, the state in terms of the officers you have in the field. What reports are you getting? What, what's the feel out there in terms of uh, our interaction with Victoria Police at the moment? Certainly interaction is increasing rather than decreasing um, and we even have seen that through the COVID-19 period in terms of we haven't seen state declines in interaction. Um, we, there are pockets of hope out there where there are good relationships developing with Whitpole with um, specific regional communities, which is fantastic, but there are other regional communities where there is a long way to go. We still hear stories of Aboriginal women in dire family violence situations going to police stations, requesting help and being turned away. Um, yeah. We have stories of Aboriginal people being misidentified as perpetrators and they are victims um, of summary crimes. Um, we have stories of Aboriginal children being over-policed, um, which is why we continue to see, you know, our kids, Daniel, as young as 10, being locked up. Um, and these things are not okay and these are the things that stain the mind and poison the relationship um, and that's why they need to be addressed. Now, we've had a series of, you know, um, you know, Victorian Aboriginal justice agreements that span back probably nearly 20 years now. And in those agreements, we have things like cultural awareness training and cultural competence training for, you know, law, law officers at, at all levels, whether they be sheriffs or whether they be prison guards, or whether they be police. Those agreements have been in place for a long time now. So why aren't we seeing any traction in terms of the rates of arrest and the, the rates of detainment for Aboriginal people after all this time? Mm -hmm. Those things don't just come down to things like cultural safety training um, or other aspects um, of training and development. Um, it also comes down to the situation and circumstances that our communities are exposed to and a lot of that time, a lot of that time, that is um, dire socioeconomic status. You know, mm. uh, they have because they're criminalised from a young age. Daniel, that means that they have poor education and training opportunities. Their employment opportunities are then curtailed because they have a record, and that impacts upon their opportunities. Um, they spend time in and out of care and had very little consistent education. Um, all of those things affect um, our community and for generations. Um, and I think a lot of the time people feel like we use generational trauma as an excuse, but it's not an excuse, it's a fact. Um, and it's, uh, it's something that goes on and on. Um, and that's because we've never put anything in place to stop it. 
Uh, we keep trying, and our ACOs and our Aboriginal leaders and communities do a wonderful job of advocating for themselves and for putting out there what needs to change. But we need a state government and a parliament that wants to work with us and make those changes. And um, I think in some instances we, we've seen that, um, particularly in childcare, um, so in child protection, where the Victorian National Childcare Agency um, has taken over some of that management from DHS, which has okay. been a positive change. Um, but then we don't see that when it comes to raising the legal responsibility. We don't see that when it comes to providing transitional supports um, for Aboriginal people that are adequate, that make sure that they have a successful journey out of prison rather than cycling them back in. We don't see, uh, you know, legislative change that will mean that we're not misidentifying perpetrators um, who are in fact victims. Um, we don't see transparency in police in terms of not having them investigate themselves when there are incidences, and these incidences, Daniel, aren't small. Um, they are things such as being assaulted um, and seriously assaulted. There are deaths in custody where we still don't have any prosecution um, despite harrowing circumstances. I mean, if you just look at the outcome of the 10 day matter where the absolute prosecution denied the opportunity to prosecute there. Um, that just tells you what it is that we're up against day in, day out. But there are also other things um, that need to change. You know, we need to have certain changes to our sentencing principles and our bail laws to make them fair and equitable um, for communities and not just our own, but also other core communities who are in the same situation of often enough having a system that is just racist and doesn't understand them and doesn't take account of them because he's made for the white man and not the black girl, not the black boy. We, we must always remember that it is a colonial system and colonialism hasn't been that great in terms of justice for, for Aboriginal people throughout the history of, you know, the colony of Victoria, the state of Victoria and, and the nation state that we are now as Australia. My name is Daniel. I'm speaking with uh, Narita White, the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, and we're talking about basically the justice system. Uh, the Black Lives Movement has been a powerful one. It's been a movement that has actually been on the go here in Australia for, for much longer than recent events in, in, the, in the US. Do you think that that movement is having an impact? Yes. Um, I definitely think that uh, the movement um, is having an impact when you look at um, changes in wider Australian society. I'm not being seen in that parliament. Um, and our politicians, but we're certainly seeing in a wider society um, who really kind of woke up to what was going on in their own country, in their own backyard, and realised that just like you see um, African-Americans um, gunned down um, in America, there are other instances of institutional violence going on here for our Aboriginal and First Nations communities um, and I think it's hard in one sense that it took um, the horrific circumstances surrounding um, the death of African Americans in America to draw attention to what's happening in our own backyard. Um, that to me was really hard um, to understand yeah, because it's not like um, in terms of a hint. You know, Daniel, they're out there. Yeah. We put them out in the media. We say, take a look at this. We can um, and it out. feels like um, they're ignored. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if you look at what ha what's happened um, in the last few weeks, you've had not only instances of police assaulting Aboriginal people, but you've had further deaths in custody. 
Yeah, this we've is had not we've, something that goes away. And it happens happens week in week out. Not not only in Victoria, of course, but across the country. And it, uh, that was one of the fascinating things I, I found with uh, you know the, the mobility of the Black Lives Movement here is that um, and you know all of our allies joining us in that movement was that it took the, the, the tragic death of an African-American to mobilise things here when we've been, and people like you in particular, have been shouting from the rooftop about some of these matters for such a long time. Now, before I let you go, um, Narita, if there was one thing that you could change about the justice system right now, what would it be? Easy question to finish off with. <laughs> <laughs> such a very easy question, Damien. We're going right on me tonight. Um, in terms of uh, the one the one thing um, would be addressing systemic racism within our institutions because without doing that we're not gonna we're not gonna reduce our people in custody. We're not gonna stop our kids being criminalized and we're not going to have a just and equitable society for us as well as mainstream Australia. Yep. That's, uh, that's the heart of the matter, really, isn't it? Systemic racism and a greater understanding of the impacts of intergenerational trauma. Narita, thank you so much for your time. Um, like so many other people in the community down here, in the Aboriginal community, I knew your mum. She was a great woman and she'd be very proud of you. So thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Daniel. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now here in 2020, it could be argued that when it comes to First Nations music, the First Nations music scene, that hip hop is probably the dominant genre. But if I put that proposition to you for debate, say, or I don't know, 20 to 30 or 40 years ago, I would have, as sometimes is still the case, been laughed out of the room. For country music was the choice for so many mob across this land. Those growing up on missions or one generation removed from mission life would listen to the dulcet tones of Charlie Pride, Slim Dusty or Tammy Wynette. The dreamy lament of country music reflected the ache of rural life and also engendered a yearning for times past and the promise of times to come. Now, our next guest, Walpuri woman and former Triple R stablemate and journalist for NITV, Rachel Hocking, wrote a most excellent article for NITV that I encourage you to check out online. I'll give a link at the end of the show, following the cancellation of the Tamworth Country Music Festival. It's a festival that's actually held dear by so many of our mob. And in the article, she explores mob's connection to this form of music, and it makes for a great yarn. Rachel, you're on the line. Thank you very much for joining us to talk this evening. Hey, it's good to be back on the mission. Thanks for having me. No sweat. Now, you've actually taken quite a deep dive into country music over the years. What is it about country music that has resonated so much with mob throughout time? I mean, well, this is a question you yourself are currently answering as well with this podcast that I know you're working on. But I think it really, yeah, there are so many layers to it, right? Like you talk yeah. about it's our mobs who grew up on the missions, who had this displacement from country, who were taken into communities that weren't their own and they had this ache, this ache for a country that was in their bloodline. Uh, it was the stockmen who were working alongside the non-Indigenous stockmen who played it on the radio. And so it was the music that they heard and the music that they grew up around. Um, it was the musical influences 
that came through Central Australia um, in different forms as well, also um, in, in, in reggae um, and what we now call bush reggae and all these yeah. All these really interesting influences from America, really, and African American music and blues music that was um, iconic to their civil rights struggle. And I think we saw that music and we felt heard by it. And we saw that music and we heard the stories of our country in it. And we and we heard the stories of our oppression in it. And I think that's what so many of our elders felt really deeply and why it's resonated. I, I don't I know you said hip hop is the biggest genre today and I agree for a lot of our mobs that's the case, but you go back to Central <laughs> Australia, even in Broome earlier this year, mob is still playing country music, you know? I would and, love um, to go to and Broome I don't right think now. they can stop. <laughs> hey, yeah, wouldn't we all? <laughs> um it is it is a genre that's going to stay with our mobs, I think, for a long time. Yeah, I think it means a lot too, because like, like you know, you've touched upon in the past, and you know, the, the, the bit of the work I'm doing at the moment um, for another project is that this was music that came along, like first generation off the mission, or sometimes on on the mission for for. Aboriginal people and, you know, the music they'd heard up to then have usually been sort of gospels or hymns or church music. Mm-hmm. And so I've always thought the the move to country music was also kind of a little bit of an act of rebellion as well. What do you reckon? Yeah, maybe. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. I think that country music was, um, is inherently storytelling music. You know, yeah. it's and, and our peoples are storytellers. Uh, I, I see gospel music very. I see it as quite the same, but I see it as someone inserting a story on you rather than um, being able to tell maybe your own story. And so I think, yeah, country music is is a bit of a rebellious genre, and I really yeah. like that description actually because it's a little bit subversive. Talk about the fact that yeah. It is, it is, and I think that's um, it's it's important to remember that our mobs used it to sing about what was what they weren't happy with at the times. And I, I've said this to you before, I think on this program, but Archie Roach once said to me that country music gave our mobs permission to cry. You know, when we were so we're so busy surviving in our everyday struggle, we don't have time to just switch off and 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 mourn everything that we've lost. And so when you grab that guitar and when you start to play and when you start to sing those dulcet tones, that that's when you start to mourn. And I think that country music was that outlet for so many of our peoples. Yep, and like you said, it still is to a large extent in some parts of the of, of the country. Now, you wrote the article on the back of the Tamworth Music Festival being cancelled. Now, for some of our some for some of our mob, Tamworth has become so much more than a festival. Do you want to elaborate on what Tamworth means to so many of our people? And I, I will have to preface this: I've never actually been to Tamworth. Um, I've never been to the festival myself, and so it was really—it was a really fun article to write because I got to learn about this part of New South Wales, this part of Gimilaroi Country, um, yeah. which is, you know, as you know, one of the biggest tribes in the country. Yeah. And um, to to learn about uh, the, what they call the home of country music in Australia, the capital of country music was really interesting to me because we know that Tamworth historically is 
a very racist town that had, like many towns in Australia, segregation. Yep. And um, Roger Knox, who you were playing just before I came on, with that beautiful song, Streets of Tamworth, that black Elvis, he experienced horrible discrimination and his whole family did growing up. And um, for him, it's a it's this bittersweet relationship, you know, with this town that that caused so much hurt and ache, but at the same time nurtured this genre, which it has become, you know, sort of like the um, anthem for our peoples. And so um, Tamworth 50-odd years ago, I think it's about 48 now, years ago, started the first Tamworth Country Music Festival and, um, you know, a bit of an experiment to see how popular the genre was. And it took off. People really get into it. And they don't just get into the to the music, they get into everything that comes with it, you know, the mm. the um, dancing and the competitions and the, the, um, the outfits that you wear. It's great. And, um, you know, they would make it bigger every single year. You'd have the cavalcade come through. And then eventually there was this push by the blackfellas in town who'd always been there and who'd always been trying to make a name for themselves but had been pushed to the outskirts to those stages in the, you know, really hot um, sheds on the edges of town, eventually managed to push to get their own showcase of Aboriginal talent. And that is when the tide started to turn and when, you know, you see people like Troy Cassadaly today, who's one of the biggest names in country music in Australia, um, really the face of that festival now, Mm. pushing this genre and what it means to our peoples. And so it's been hard slog. And I don't think, I think the blackfellas who go to Tamworth every year don't want to forget that. They don't want that story to be forgotten. But there's a lot of pride in how much they fought for it, and especially the Knox family, you know, making making their name. Yeah. <clears throat> it was, like you said, it was that, that time when when Tamworth started taking off, it sort of gave license for um, Aboriginal people to um, pick up guitars and start singing their own songs, and that music, <clears throat> that music tradition continues to this very day. What do you think distinguishes Blackfellas' take on country um, music compared to sort of mainstream country music that we see in other parts of uh, the Australian culture? Um, it's a good question. I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. My favourite non-Indigenous country music artist is Dolly Parton. And Same. she sings a lot well, about... Actually, hey, no, sorry, <laughs> um, second after Charlie. No? My apologies. Freudian slip. Yes. Well, we call, so we call Charlie an honorary blackfella, don't we? Uncle Charlie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uncle Charlie. <laughs> so, yeah, next to Charlie Pride, obviously, we've got Dolly Parton, who I'd say is one of the, the one of the um, you know, obviously experts of the genre. And she uh, she sings about her hometown. She talks about Tennessee. She sings about um, her family, and she sings about love. And those are things that our mobs sing about too. I think the difference is is. Our mobs sing about their homeland, you know, they sing about their bloodlines and their connections to it, and they sing about the struggle, the the separation, and what you have described as the ache, the aches of that country. And I, I really love 
the fact that we bring our languages into it as well, you know. Um, Frank yeah. Yammer is my favourite all-time country music artist and he's a central desert fellow like I am. And he, he really does. He You feel the minute he starts to, to open his mouth to the ache he has for his home and, and the love he has for where he comes from. He means and every word. It's a different... Yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's different to... To someone like Dolly Parton, who who has that passion, but is singing about a land that, you know, First Nations people lived on first, and that they have that bloodline connection to. Yeah, Mark Knopfler of uh, Dire Straits fame, for those listening out there, actually described a lot of the modern country music scene in um, in America as being populated by deodorised cowboys. And that's one thing you won't get if you um, listen to Indigenous uh, country music. You'll get the real deal every time. But I thought I'd let you just go with one supplementary question. Uh, you work for uh, NITV who do fantastic work highlighting some of the issues confronting our mob across the country on a small budget, but you bring it week in, week out. What's it like being a journalist in the pandemic with all these border restrictions? What's it, what's it like actually trying to report some of the issues that are actually happening out there on country? Uh, look, it's, it's tough because the, the thing I love most about my job and that I've always loved most about my job is that I get to travel across the country. Yeah. And I get to go to places like Broome I went to in February just before borders closed. But we had a plan this year to, to take The Point, the show that I co-host, we had a plan to take it to a community once a month this year. Yeah. And, um, and we'd locked in so many communities and we'd been yarning with them and we were going to spend a week in advance there talking to traditional owners about what it is that, that makes that part of the world so special. And so it, it's it, it's heartbreaking that we don't get to do that because you only get to showcase country, um, you know, in all of its in, in all of its flaws and, and all of its beauty when you're there. But we have been doing it via Zoom instead. And to be honest, I think we've done a pretty bloody good job. And I think community have really bloody well have. Um, embraced it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think that mob have just been like super keen to get their stories out there. It also means that we're now doing yarns with communities that we we can't reach normally and we're like, well, we had always valued Skype interviews and, and the industry values Skype interviews as yeah. lesser quality. And so if you could avoid them, you would. And nowadays they're part and parcel. You're like, okay, you're going to have a Zoom interview in your bulletin. So um, you can get someone from anywhere. You can get people from, you know, the border of South Australia, Northern Territory and WA, as long as they got an all right internet connection, which a lot of communities do have. And so um, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's been tricky. It's been a balancing act, but we're still, we're still pumping out the arms. We're still making sure our mob's voices are heard, much like you're doing in your home studio in Bucklands. Yeah, I'm in um, Studio A tonight. Um, sometimes I come out of Studio B in the West Wing of complex uh, <laughs> here. But, yeah, Studio A tonight at <laughs> Radio City Docklands. Rachel, thank you so much for the, your time. If you want to check out Rachel's article, just go to sbs.com.au forward slash NITV and just do a simple search for Tamworth and uh, the article will come out. It's a very comprehensive article, very well written as expected. And, um, look, have a Good rest of the 2020, Rachel. I hope uh, 2021 is better for all of us. I hope Uncle Donald is able to come up with a uh, vaccine in the next couple of weeks, as he's promised. 
um, so we can get things moving again. But um, thank you so much for your time again this evening. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.